Hello, my name's Larry Seidman here in Victoria, BC, Canada. Welcome to Discovering Jazz, where you and I discover this great music, old and new, together. Thanks to Peterborough Independent Podcasters for hosting this podcast. So, what makes one of the million or so tunes that are out there become a standard? One that jazz artists gravitate towards. Oh, where have you been, Billy boy, Billy boy? Oh, where have you been, charming Billy? I have been to seek a wife. She's the joy of my life. She's a young thing and cannot leave her mother. For example, do you have any idea how this tune ever became turned into an oft-recorded jazz tune? This is a song I knew as a child, and you're listening to a recording of it by folk singer Ed McCurdy, who lived in Nova Scotia, Canada, for many years of his life. One can argue that there are certain qualities within a tune. It's either really catchy or has certain types of sequences over which jazz musicians can improvise, but a lot of tunes meet that criteria and never get known as jazz tunes. I think, and I know this is arguable, that one of the biggest factors is whether they were recorded by a certain artist who has the qualities of a bellwether. I talked last week about how Miles Davis could, just by recording it, increase the likelihood of any tune becoming a standard. Some may argue, too, that Bill Evans, John Coltrane, Frank Sinatra, and a few others end up exerting a huge influence. And then there's Ama Jamal, who inspired Miles Davis to record certain tunes that later became famous in Miles Davis' versions. But back to Billy Boy, here's a version by Ama Jamal recorded in 1952 with a group Jamal called The Three Strings, with Eddie Calhoun on bass and guitarist Ray Crawford. I'll follow it with more Ama Jamal and a Rodgers and Hammerstein tune from the musical Oklahoma. Thank you. 
What you heard was the pianist Amma Jamal. First, Billy Boy, then Rodgers and Hammerstein's Surrey with the fringe on top. Neither of those tunes seem ripe to be jazz standards, but somehow they became that. The second one was later, with his legendary rhythm section of drummer Vernel Fournier and bassist Israel Crosby from his very popular Live at the Pershing album of 1958. Uh, so, was Ahmed Jamal a bellwether? Someone who sets trends and people follow? It's arguable, as he recorded a lot of tunes during those days that are rarely played by jazz artists. Most of the ones that became standards were later recorded by Miles Davis, which is why last week I made a pitch for voting in Miles Davis as jazz's chief bellwether. Let's start with figuring out how Billy Boy became a jazz standard, as opposed to a traditional folk song that kids like me would sing in the playground. Ahmad Jamal did the first jazz version. Then the next year, an obscure Canadian group called the Canadian All-Stars, led by an accordion player, Gordon Fleming, covered it. Then American jazz pianist Hampton Hawes in 1956. Then in 1958 was the classic version on the Miles Davis Milestones album, played by pianist Red Garland, Without Miles. That probably contributed to more people recording the tune, but maybe not quite enough to make it a jazz standard. Surrey, with a fringe on top, on the other hand, has spawned many recordings since Ahmed Jamal first recorded it in 1952, then again in 1958, uh, which was that version you just heard. Miles Davis did record it, but it had already been recorded since Ahmed Jamal introduced it to jazz by a number of great jazz musicians, including Cannonball Adderley and Oscar Peterson. But let's move on. Here is the classic Miles Davis recording of Bronislav Capers on Green Dolphin Street. Then I'll talk more about bellwethers. Thank you. 
Miles Davis from 1958 with Bill Evans on piano, John Coltrane and Cannonball Adderley saxes, Paul Chambers bass and drummer Jimmy Cobb. Let's use that tune as a guide to talking more about bellwethers. Since that's the theme of this program, I first heard the term in a Connie Willis science fiction book called Bellwether. That was about a social scientist trying to find the origin of various fads or trends. It takes her into a study of sheep where it is very hard to determine which particular sheep is influencing the others to follow. It's not always the one who goes first. And it was only through a very complex vector analysis that the protagonist could eventually figure out which sheep was the bellwether. So in jazz, we don't always know for sure who are the bellwethers. The main contest does seem to be between Ahmed Jamal and Miles Davis, and maybe a nomination or two for Bill Evans. Looking at that very much played On Green Dolphin Street, which we just heard, written by Bronislav Kaper. It was written for a 1947 film called Green Dolphin Street, and after that, it didn't get recorded until 1955, and that was by trombonist Irby Green. But it was Miles Davis's version from 1958 that made the song take off and become a jazz standard, played frequently at jazz jams, and so often recorded. Where did Miles get his inspiration? Once again, it was Ahmed Jamal who recorded it. That was in 1956. Jamal used shifting rhythmic textures. One uh, that, that changed from uh, Latin to swing, and so did Miles. Although what he did, what Miles did, was go back and forth from swing to a more Latinist groove, while Jamal stayed in swing for the most part after the first few bars. And it's the Miles version that everybody seems to play. So that's another piece of evidence to suggest that if there were a bellwether here, it would be Miles. Here's a bit of that earlier Abba Jamal recording of the tune. there are some standards that Miles Davis made famous as jazz tunes that Ahmed Jabal never recorded. Someday My Prince Will Come, originally written in the 1930s for the Disney cartoon version of Sleeping Beauty, is another standard that is known through the Miles Davis version. This one was first recorded by an obscure jazz pianist named John Williams in 1955, then by Dave Brubeck a year later, then two years later by Bill Evans, all prior to the Miles Davis recording. And speaking of Brubeck, he was another pianist who seemed to inspire Miles Davis and, through Miles, inspired others to record certain tunes. Dave Brubeck wrote in your own sweet way in the early 50s. Miles Davis then helped to establish it as a standard, recording it twice in 1956, in March with Sonny Rollins and in May with John Coltrane, changing the melody just a touch by closing the A theme on a very different note. I'll play a touch first of that uh, original Brubeck recording, then the first Miles Davis recording, uh, one after another, and listen to those different last notes. (laughs) 
first Miles Davis recording where he changes the last note. Although Rubeck wrote the tune, so his melody has to be considered the correct one if there is such a thing, since there was such a pronounced difference between the two versions related to that one ending note, I thought it would be interesting to do some of what Connie Willis's protagonist did in Bellwether and figure out who was the most powerful Bellwether. And since jazz musicians aren't sheep, there are always a few who decide not to follow the bellwether. So I gave a quick listen to many of the different versions that tuned, and I discovered that the vast majority appeared to play the Miles Davis melody. And this is right from the late 50s through the 60s, and even a version recorded in 2021. One rebel, however, who did the original Brubeck version was Bill Evans in his 1964 recording. And a few people who later played that original version, such as Marion McPartland and Woody Shaw, were they following Bill Evans' lead or Dave Brubeck's? We'll probably never know. One person who seemed to try a compromise was Phil Woods, where in his 1958 version, he plays the Miles Davis note at the end of the phrase, then slides up into the Brubeck note. Although in the solos, it does seem like the Miles Davis version ends up being predominant. Let's give that whole recording a listen. With Bob Corwin on piano, Sonny Dallas bass, and Nick Stabulous drums. Um, Dave Brubeck's In Your Own Sweet Way by the Phil Woods Quartet. Thank you. 
in your own sweet way, the Phil Woods Quartet. Then there's another favorite of mine that Miles Davis recorded, especially appropriate for the hot summer days and nights we've been experiencing. It's called Summer Night, music by Harry Warren. The first version was by the Russ Morgan Orchestra in 1936, and Shelley Mann recorded it in 1955. It did seem to take off after the 1964 Miles Davis version, although it took a while, with most of the versions I found being recorded in the 2000s. Here's one by Vancouver-born pianist René Roseness from 1990 with Joe Henderson on sax, Summer Night.
Summer Night, Rene Rosnes Piano, Joe Henderson Saxophone, Ira Coleman Bass, and Billy Drummond on Drums. This week's podcast is about bellwethers in jazz, mostly focusing on how certain jazz musicians, especially Miles Davis, were an influence in determining which tunes became jazz standards. But Frank Sinatra might be viewed as another bellwether, having swung or reinterpreted so many Broadway tunes that jazz players began to notice them. When I start playing a lot of old pop and Broadway standards, Frank Sinatra's voice and lyrics so often come to mind. Let's play his version of Antonio Carlos Jobim's Once I Loved, which he claimed to have said after recording it in 1967 he'd never sung so softly in his life. But his album of that year with Antonio Carlos Jobim probably did a lot to popularize the Brazilian bossa nova-style tunes of Jobim, as did Stan Getz and Wild Gilberto in 1963, Once I Loved. Sinatra and Joe Beam. 
While there have been so many musicians who have made an incredible contribution to the evolution of jazz, I haven't put them in the bellwether category mainly because their creativity has been so obvious and it seems really understandable why so many jazz musicians followed them. And except uh, maybe for Bill Evans, they weren't necessarily people who, just by recording an old tune, made it into a standard. But Louis Armstrong might be in that category. The influence he has had on creating a, a new style of jazz, being considered to be the first ever great jazz soloist, has been obvious, but less known might be how he ended up finding certain folk songs, many of which he learned from his association with a number of Jewish families, such as the Karnovskys. Here's one of those tunes, a traditional Russian gypsy song known in English as Dark Eyes, which Louis turns into an American-style jazz tune. Chachania, my sweet Chachania, honey California, really want you. Look ahead, Tony, where's Caledonia? My, 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 Tony, be mine.
from Louis Armstrong and Dark Eyes, a version from the mid-50s. It's a tune I grew up with uh, that, partly thanks to Louis, is now part of many jazz musicians' repertoire. Lastly, since this series has focused a lot on Miles Davis's bellwether role, let's end with that. Miles Davis, by changing his focus every few years, influenced a lot of trends in jazz, from bebop to modal jazz. And with Gil Evans and Gunther Schuller, he played a big role in developing what is called third-stream music, which is a combination of classical and jazz, and in the end, became neither. But what a lot of people don't know is how much trombonist J.J. Johnson contributed to third-stream becoming a subgenre of jazz, J.J. Johnson wrote works such as his Poem for Brass and the Rondo for Quartet and Orchestra, but his best, his best known composition ended up being a 32-bar ballad called Lament. Here it is, from 1954, playing with another trombonist, Kai Winding, also playing our Billy Bauer guitar, Charles Mingus bass, and Kenny Clark on drums. <laughs> so sorry to be cutting off this beautiful J.J. Johnson and Kai Winding version of J.J. Johnson's Lament, but we're running out of time. And it was the Miles Davis version of this J.J. Johnson tune that uh, through his featuring it on the Miles Ahead album two and a half years later turned the tune into a standard. And that's what makes Miles Davis such a bellwether. People followed whatever he did, more so than they did from the people that he had followed. Ending off with this collaboration with Gil Evans, one of Columbia Records' biggest selling jazz albums, and the tune again is Lament, and 
You are listening to Discovering Jazz. My name's Larry Sademan. I'm inviting you to tune in next week when I'll be playing some current Canadian jazz, nominees and winners from Canada's Juno Awards. Bye for now. Thank you.